Well, let's turn open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read that passage together in a moment. Well, this summer I'm going to be turning 30 and my body has begun to let me know what's in store in my future. I know, I know. Many of y'all are specialists in this category, but this is new territory for me. The uh, random, just because injuries have begun. And a couple weeks ago, I was playing a game with with my middle son, Knox. He's four years old, and I I was chasing after the the fastest four-year-old in town. And my two-year-old son, Leo, wanted to get in on the action, but he's too slow to keep up. So he had me carry him while running after Knox. And I I took a quick turn at one point and just felt a sudden sharp pain in my side that kind of never went away. So I went to the chiropractor eventually and found out I I had dislocated my rib and I had injured the joint and strained the muscles and I did all of that while playing tag. (laughs) And if, I I was just thinking, if if Leo and I are struggling to to keep up when when Knox is four, who who knows what's to come? but, but pastorally today, it can, it can feel a bit like that as well, that we're struggling to keep up. And it is painful. It, it feels like the culture is outpacing the church in the category of discipleship. Even for believers, cultural instincts are, are getting inside of us faster than biblical principles. Our habits, our feelings, our expectations, our outlook on life, these things are often shaped by the world around us. We're under the spell of what Pastor Keith has described as an enchanted age. And we don't always realize this. There are things that we think that we believe. You know, we think that we're different. But when life hits us, it's, it's like our reflexes kick in and what that looks like, it just looks like what everybody else around us is doing. You know, we're, we're a bit like the, the 1,500 people who attend the climate change summit by flying in on private jets. You know, what, what we believe doesn't always line up with our life patterns. But, but something that's been helpful about our visit with the Corinthians is to discover that that's not a new problem. This was the church in Corinth with a lot of Corinth in the church. You know, the way that they approached life. What, what made sense to them? How they responded to the problems that they faced. It was often drawn from the values of their culture. And so they, they could talk a big game about being unique. About being spiritual people. But in many ways they, they fit into their surroundings quite well. Well, our own interaction with the passage this morning is, is going to bump up against ways that we've adopted assumptions from the world around us. And, and there's a main point here that's clear enough, but I want us to notice this. That there are ideas that are underneath it. There are supporting arguments that Paul brings here. And, and these things might not be inside of us in a deep way, so that there are reflexes when life Hits us. Alright, so let's read together chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, 
Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother? And that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. You know, one of the benefits of expository preaching is that the topic for this morning is just the next thing in the letter. And so we might not have arrived at church feeling like we particularly needed a a message on lawsuits. But that's what God has brought for us today. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands for how many of y'all are are currently involved in a lawsuit with another Christian. Y'all can just go ahead and start repenting now. Um, One of my youth members this Wednesday night jokingly told me that she was going to sue me. And I said, well, just make sure you're paying attention to the sermon this Sunday. Um, but, but, but this isn't just about lawsuits. This doesn't just speak to that issue. It reaches deeper than that. It teaches us something about who we are as the people of God and how that should affect how we engage life in this world and conflicts with one another. And the issue isn't primarily the presence of conflict. Paul is not surprised that there's conflict in this church. It's about how we go about responding to conflict as individual believers and as a community. And there are things that Paul is jealous to protect. You know, G.K. Chesterton once said that the bad thing about a quarrel is that it spoils a good argument. And what he meant by that is that in conflict, you often lose sight of things that are actually worth arguing for. And Paul's going to argue for some things in this text, and you can hear it in his tone. The very first word in the Greek text is the word dare. That's how he starts. Dare you do this? And so he opens verse 1 by saying, how dare you? And then in verse 5 he says, shame on you. And if you just pay attention to the kinds of sentences in this paragraph, he uses statements of shock in verse 1 and verse 6. There are rhetorical questions in verses 2 and 3 and 7. If you're a parent, you're a specialist in those. And then there's biting sarcasm in verse 5. He sounds contentious. You know, that, that might strike us as, a, as an odd way to communicate to a church that they should stop, stop fighting one another. But Paul isn't telling them not to fight here. He's telling them they're fighting about all of the wrong things. There, there are things that are worth fighting for. And, and here Paul fights for the unique identity of God's people. For the sanctified wisdom 
of God's community and for the compelling beauty of God's gospel. All right, so first, he, he fights for the unique identity of God's people. The, the, the church in Corinth was a church that had, had become flipped inside out. I remember where things landed last week in chapter 5, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And so we're not really getting a new topic here. There, there was no chapter 5 and chapter 6 when, when Paul sat down to write this letter. We're still talking about the same problem. But it's just a different illustration of it. In chapter 5, Paul corrects them for, for, for being unwilling to, to deal with someone in their midst who's, who's living in unrepentant sin. They, they're tolerating a, a form of incest that makes even the pagans queasy. And he's saying, what are you doing? Why aren't you dealing with this in your community here? And, and, and they were ignoring this problem in the church while all the while looking down their noses and disassociating from unbelievers. And he says, that's not what I intended for you to do. But then ironically in chapter 6, they, they were taking these, these disagreements, these disputes that should have been addressed inside of the church and they were bringing them outside for others to judge. They failed to address internal things, but then they made external what should have been handled internally. The, the church was inside out. And that's never a pretty sight. But we should clarify this. This, this passage doesn't teach us that believers are exempt from all outside judgment. He's talking about relational grievances, Disputes about money and property. Things that we would typically call civil cases. But Douglas Wilson comments in a way only he can. If someone is peeling out of your driveway in your new car, you need not have a family discussion over the likelihood of the thief being a baptized Christian before you call the cops. Uh, Why not? Because that's a crime. And believers are subject to the state. We're, We're accountable to the government. This same Paul writes in Romans 13 verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so if I get arrested, I don't get to pull out a card. I don't get to say, I don't know if y'all realize this, but I'm a member of Lakeview Christian Center. Uh, I'm not sure what would happen next, but I don't want to find out. Uh, churches are to respect the role that God calls governing authorities to play. Stephen Um writes this, Paul instructs the church to handle these standard issues internally. This instruction does not imply that all things that happen within the church are necessarily in-house issues. Throughout history, churches have made the mistake of trying to handle issues in-house that require the intervention of the authorities. If this had been an issue like embezzlement, abuse, sexual misconduct, any matter with actual criminal ramifications, Paul would have called for the intervention of the authorities. The scope of the passage is limited to intra-church disputes that don't need to be elevated outside the community. And, and so it's, it's not a contradiction to lovingly pray for somebody's repentance while calling the police. 
And, and victims should seek justice from God-ordained authorities. And, and as, as believers, we, we need to offer our, our shelter and our support to them. Seeing that perpetrators are held accountable is, is one of God's ways of protecting people from harm. But the conflicts that Paul's addressing here, they're not something that the state should have jurisdiction over. The government doesn't issue a ruling on fellowship between believers. And in making this point, Paul is reminding them of their identity. He says, when you're dragging another believer into court, you must have been hit in the head. Have you forgotten who you are? Uh, they're, they're a bit like Jason Bourne, if you've seen that film franchise. Dude ha- suffering from amnesia, all he knows is he, he knows how to fight. And so he is swinging punches with no idea what his name is. And that's what's happening inside of this church. Look at, at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And notice the distinction he's making. In chapter 5, there were outsiders and insiders. Here there are the unrighteous and the saints. And, And Paul has different expectations for these two groups. I'm not going to re-preach Pastor Keith's message from last week. Just very helpful for understanding the the spiritual realities that are involved. You you, you need that backdrop for this one. So go back and listen to that one if you weren't here last Sunday. But but he's saying you're, you're taking before the unrighteous what should only be brought before the saints. Now, if you have a, a New Orleans Catholic background, you might think of the saints, if they're not a football team, they're like really holy dead people. Uh, but that's not how the New Testament uses that word. Uh, in fact, he opens this letter by referring to all the Corinthians as saints. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, to the church of God that is in, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints... Together. So to be a saint is to be sanctified. It's to be set apart from the system of this world. Now remember, we're still in association with this world. But we are not of this world. We're not of its same reasonings. Its same motivations. We are set apart. We're called to be distinct. We answer to a higher law. And not to the standards of this age. He's telling them that, that that's who you are. You have a unique calling from God. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you personally and inside of your church community. You have the resources of righteousness. But, but you're going to those who are wandering in darkness. Whom the Bible says they don't know their left hand from their right hand. And you're looking to them and telling them, can you tell that guy he wronged me? Hey, unrighteous person, can you declare who's in the right in this circumstance? And you're doing that out of convenience 
or personal benefit. It, it gets you what you want or what you think you deserve. And so it feels justified when your reflexes kick in. But they were surrendering ground to the world. These are real categories for Paul. They're not throwaway terms. He fights to maintain this. The distinction between an unbeliever and a believer is not trivial. You know, because we've kind of, we've brought in the thought of the culture around us, we can start to think that that's just kind of a matter of people's beliefs and preferences. Like, what kind of diet do you have? What kind of clothing do you wear? You know, your, your religious preference. We can think that's just like any other choice or option that someone makes. And so, it doesn't really have any real world bearing on, on their knowledge, on their discernment, on how they're going to approach the problems that people face. But, but this is, this is a difference between life and death. Does that sound strange to our ears? Now in saying that, that doesn't give us any basis for boasting. That's where this letter began. We're just as clueless as the world around us unless grace steps in and rescues us. Opens up our eyes. Awakens us to life. But Paul's saying, it, wouldn't it matter if, if the person that you are looking to to sort through these issues can see? If, if they're going to be the one calling fouls? Are they going to be as blind as an NFL ref? <laughs> we need to move on from that, I know. Unbelievers are not in a place of exercising judgment over spiritual matters. He, he said earlier in 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And, and, and this spiritually proud church had become natural-minded in thinking that all they needed was somebody to step in and give them a verdict on natural stuff. Just sort through the natural things. Just tell us what to do with our money, with our property. Just tell us who's in the wrong. As if that's really all that's involved when there's conflict among Christians. Is that really what's taking place here? Is that all you can discern? Ken Sandy writes this. As James 4, 1 through 3 teaches, prolonged intense conflict is generally caused or aggravated by sinful desires that war in people's hearts. This is as true for lawsuits as it is with most other conflicts. When two Christians lock horns over legal issues, there are, there are almost always sin issues involved. These may include honoring your contracts, telling the truth, shifting responsibility and getting caught up in self-justification, harboring bitterness or anger towards someone, Refusing to repair damage done to someone or cheating or otherwise doing wrong to someone. Civil courts can make rulings on legal and property issues, but they have no jurisdiction or ability to address sin or other matters of the heart. Only the church can authoritatively carry out the ministry that is needed to thoroughly resolve a lawsuit between believers. If the dispute involves matters of the heart, as almost all lawsuits do, 
God wants it resolved through the one institution he established to minister to the heart, which is the local church. Do you believe that? The one institution that God has designed to minister to the heart. I don't know if our life, if our thought patterns, if how we see this world answers to that. Even if on some level we can assent to it on on paper. Have we entrusted these things to the systems of the world? There's an increasing secularism even among believers. One of the points that Charles Taylor makes in his, his book, A Secular Age, is that the, the effect of secularism in a society is not just that it makes unbelief possible, but that it actually changes belief. It, it changes the, the weight that belief has in people's lives. And so we all assimilate to the secular age. We adopt its practices, even if we don't, don't share all of its assumptions. And, and one trend of this is, is, is the, uh, in, one expression of this is the increasing trend of believers looking to unbelieving experts to explain life. You know, a couple decades ago, that was pop psychology. Today, it's increasingly the, the neuroscientists or the behavioral specialists, or the secular therapist. And so it's some article your friend posted about how your diet, or how your genetic makeup, or how your Enneagram personality type is the source of all your relational problems and the conflicts that you face and your emotional issues. And so we Google ourselves to death trying to fix that. Why why do we do this? Oh, because we've been discipled by the culture. Now, it doesn't mean that there, there's not truth in those things, right? All truth is God's truth. They, they might be providing us a slice of reality. And, and that might be very helpful to have. And I'm not saying we can't learn and benefit from unbelievers. Your, your surgeon doesn't need to be a Christian in order to operate on you. <laughs> Uh, you don't need to check your mechanic's statement of faith before you bring in your car. But what about spiritual health? What about the mechanics of the soul? Who are the specialists for that? For resolving conflicts? For understanding the motivations of human behavior? For remedying the needs of the heart? for seeking counsel is, is your first instinct to go outside of the community of God's people for help. We might look a lot like the Corinthians. And Paul draws attention to this distinction, but he also highlights their destiny. Look at verse two. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Something's future role should determine its present use. And so you might use an old toothbrush for cleaning, but I would hope you'd never scrub your grout with something you intended to still use as a toothbrush in the future. And, and, and Paul's telling them here, you, you have a role in the future. And what you do in the present 
needs to answer to that. There, there needs to be a correspondence between how you go about these things now and your calling in eternity. He says, you're, you're going to judge the world. He probably has in mind Daniel 7, 22. It says, the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And he's saying, right now, you're appearing before a world that you will one day judge and you are asking them to judge the church. You see how backwards that is? How inside out this has become. We will be called upon to participate when God balances the scales of justice. We need to have a superior justice system than the broken conditions of this world. It better not have come from Facebook. But then he says this, do you not know that you will judge angels? And some of us might be thinking, uh, no, <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that's part of what I signed up for. He's saying there are, there are these spiritual beings and you will be called upon to exercise oversight for them. There are fallen angels that you will represent Christ in their condemnation. There are unfallen, glorious creatures that in the new earth, God will give you authority over. That's your destiny. And you're caught up in these petty cases. You will inherit the earth. And you're, you're fighting with another brother about one square inch of real estate in a world that's passing away. And so in, in calling these cases trivial, he doesn't mean they were insignificant. He's not saying like, hey, y'all are suing each other over a hundred bucks. You should only file a lawsuit against a Christian if it's like a hundred thousand dollars. That's not the point. They may involve really significant things, weighty wrongs, but, but they were trivial in comparison to the judgments of eternity. What are you more aware of? What animates you? What brings you to a place of wanting to fight? Is it the trivial? From the eyes of the ancient of days? Or the eternal? Second, Paul fights to protect the sanctified wisdom of God's community. Verse 5, he says, Can it be that there is not one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? And remember, wisdom's a trigger word in this letter. And so he's not using this by accident. There's a little bit of sarcasm in what he's saying here. They, they, they boasted about their wisdom. But ironically, they, they didn't seem to believe in their wisdom. Right? If, if your church is so special... If you're so enlightened, if you're so discerning, why are you abandoning your church and going outside of that for resolution about these things, for help with these problems? But, because really, they were wise in their own eyes. It, it wasn't so much our church is wise, it was I'm wise. 
I've got this figured out. I can see this clearly. I don't need the benefit of the people around me that are sitting in a pew next to me. I don't need leadership in this. I just need action. I just need results. I already understand what's going on. I already know what's inside of my heart. I already know what's inside the agenda of the other person. I don't need to benefit from the community of wisdom that God has designed. I just need somebody who's going to step in and make it right. And so they were willing to ape the world's wisdom to get it. But the church is supposed to be an alternative to the wisdom of this world. We don't conduct our affairs in ways that reflect the brokenness of our culture. We, we're an alternative community. We, we are shaped by the wisdom of the cross. And God intends that to make a difference in how we approach conflict. God calls the, the, the church to, to bring its insight, to, to bring its resources, to bring its relationships to support the ministry of reconciliation. You might remember last week, Pastor Keith quoted Craig Blomberg about how we have this, this tendency in the, in the Christian world to set up our own little subcultures and insulated groups so that we don't ever have to interact with unbelievers and we can kind of just do our own thing in our own world. And he, he was critical of that. But, but then he commented on, on this passage. He says, here's one place, however, where Christian alternatives are not only desirable, but mandatory. We, we ought to be distinct here. Not, not to remove ourselves from the world, but, but ultimately to be a witness to the world. It ought to look different. When, when you're in a conflict, when there's a struggle with another believer, either in this church or in another church, another professing Christian, the next thing you do and the thing after that and how you see that process through ought to look different than the world around us. We're to be a community that displays both God's justice and his mercy. It's interesting to hear secular legal authorities comment on what happens to a society when this starts to break down. Back in 1982, Chief Justice Warren Burger wrote, One reason our courts have become overburdened is that Americans are increasingly turning to the courts for relief from a range of personal distresses and anxieties. Remedies for personal wrongs that once were considered the responsibility of institutions other than the courts are now boldly asserted as legal entitlements. The courts have been expected to fill the void created by the decline of church, family, and neighborhood unity. Can it not be? There's no one among you who is wise enough to settle a dispute. But this is a challenge. Because it does require wisdom. And if we're not people of prayer, if we're not deep in the word of God, if, if we're not students of life and of humanity, if we're not growing in the skills of reconciliation, there are skills that are involved in this in handling it personally and helping Others, If we're not meaningfully involved in one another's lives, then what a sad day if, if someone is in 
a situation and, and they, can, they can find no one around them who is available to provide counsel, who, who can be trusted to lead them to, through a process of mediation, who, who can be available if, if needed to, to provide a, a verdict. We're going to be judging the world one day. Are we getting practice now? Are we available to help? One of the things that this passage assumes, like the one that came before it, is church membership. It, it, it assumes that you are in a, a, a particular local church, that you're not just drifting around, attending different places, that you're in a community where, where you're known, where you know your leaders, where they know your life, where, where there, there are people that you are invested in, and that you're accountable to that. And, and that the, the, the person that you might be in conflict with is, in, is accountable to that as well. So that they can be called upon to, to honor biblical principles. And not to just ignore them and do whatever they want to do. And live out of the resources of the flesh. And so that, that church discipline process that a couple weeks ago we looked at in, in chapter 5. That describes what do you what do, you do when, when, when a, another believer has sinned against you. You go to them personally. You go to them face to face first. And you try to work it out. And then you benefit from others. And, and then at some point if they're, if they're not responding. If, if there's not repentance that's taking place. Paul calls upon the, the community to have a role in, in, in calling them to account. And saying, live like a believer. Don't look like the world around you in what you do next. And if there's a refusal to do that, then there's, there's, there's a place for, you're not living in light of your profession of faith anymore. And so for any of this to, to have function in our lives... We need to be meaningfully involved. We need to be called to a local church. We need to be a member saying, this is what I want. This is what I want to see in the brothers and sisters around me. But like Corinth, we often neglect this process, not because we lack available people who are willing to help, but because of our own pride. This is during the ESV translate verse Translates verse 4 as, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I like that translation. I like the, the concept it has about who has standing to judge these things. I really wanted to preach a point from that translation. The problem is I don't think it's the best one. Um, the, the word that he uses there for, for laying before is actually the word appoint. And we don't typically have a role of appointing judges and and the the way he describes these people the the what's rendered there is no standing it's the it's the word for those who are despised and that's not a word that Paul uses for unbelievers he, he doesn't call them the despised in fact anytime he uses that word he's talking about believers and and, and so it seems like what he's telling them to do is is appoint those who are despised among the church. And so the, the King James translated this. Set them to judge. Even who are least esteemed in the church. In other words. The, the least believer. Is better than an unbeliever to judge. Why? Because the least believer has the gospel. 
And it's likely the, the, the individuals involved in these lawsuits were, were the wealthier members of the congregation. They owned property. They, they, they had something to have a lawsuit about. And that wasn't common. Most people were, were not landowners. And so litigation was kind of a, a problem of privilege. You know, you had to, uh, you know, people who were just getting by didn't really have the luxury of filing suit. And in fact, one of the ways to, to gain social standing in the first century was to kind of work your way up through the courts to prove that you are somebody. And so, so to bring their case before people in the church would, would probably mean to set it before individuals who are of lower social standing who are poor, who, who are not recognized in the systems of this world, who've probably never in their life handled assets like that. They've never touched that kind of money before. And so there's probably pushback. I don't want Joe deciding my case. He's got no experience here. He wouldn't know what to do with this. He doesn't understand what's at stake in my life. In this trivial thing that I'm fighting for. So they were more willing to trust people who had power in this world than those who had the power of God's spirit. Paul's saying, better that you would go to the despised. Remember what he said earlier in this letter, God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise, the wise in their own eyes. God chose what is low and despised in this world. Now, I don't don't think Paul means by that, just select people at random. You know, you over there, I don't know if you've ever read your Bible before, come here, (laughs) fix this problem for me. You know, I I think uh, obviously we we should seek people that have spiritual maturity, people of discernment. Um, I think in in many cases that, that would be church leaders who would help someone walk through a process of handling conflict, your small group leaders, um, leaders in, in the church. Elders who are called to keep watch over your soul and, and who have a place of authority in, in, in holding church members to account here. Now that, that raises a question. What do you do if your dispute is with the pastor? <laughs> uh, if, your, if your problem is with the church leader, if you think they've done you wrong, they have mishandled you. He has sinned against me. Or he shouldn't be a pastor anymore. He's disqualified himself because of something that happened in this situation that I'm a part of. Right, who, who addresses that? Well, if you remember what we said earlier, it, it, if, if something against the law has happened, if there's been some kind of crime that's been committed, well, that, that's why God has given governing authorities to oversee that. And so that, that's why there are situations where you should feel free to call the police if a church leader has committed some kind of crime. But if this is a matter of sin, if this is a matter of relational grievance, well, 1 Corinthians 6 speaks into that. It, it, it has that exact kind of situation in mind. 
It says, allow the resources of your church community to walk with you through this. And one of the things that we introduce, we, we have our, our new members class coming up this month. We introduce it as part of our membership process. Uh, what do you do if, if, if you have a grievance against a church leader? Or, or you, you, if you feel like something wrong has been done? And then there's a, there's a process that's outlined for bringing a charge against an elder. And there's something called our, our book of church order that says, let's benefit from um, leaders here as well as churches outside of us locally for, for speaking to this in a way that's consistent with what Paul writes here and other passages in the New Testament. Now, all these things have their limitations. And it, it's possible to have exhausted all of the resources that God has intended for us to use and not be happy with the results. In fact, there's a 50% chance of that, right? <laughs> In any conflict that you're likely not going to be happy with the, the results. And so what do you do next? What else is available for me to, to, to get help? To see that justice is done? To allow other people to be outraged about this in the way that I am? And so, often we resort to the court of public opinion. And we publish on social media. Or maybe we circumvent that process altogether. And that's where we start. Grievance equals publish and post. Right away. But, but, but everything Paul says here applies to this as well. Because what's happening there is, is we're, we're still airing our grievances before an unbelieving world. Inviting people who are not involved in a situation who might not know the facts that are involved. Who might not be a member of the saints to evaluate and to, and to form a conclusion and come to a place of judgment on these matters. We, we're seeking vindication online at the expense of Christ's reputation. And that's what's at stake here. And that's the third thing that Paul is jealous for. Look at verse 6. Compelling beauty of God's gospel. But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers. What do the unbelievers get to see in this? They get to see brother against brother. One member of the family of God against another child of God. And that is a damage to our witness. Sometimes this is described as, you know, don't bring your dirty laundry in public. Don't wash your dirty linen out there. I don't think that what Paul means by that is, is to kind of guard the eyes and the ears of the world from knowing that there's conflict in the church. Like, don't let them know that. Don't let them know we really are sinful and imperfect people and we do weird stuff. Uh, you know, just wait till they're, they've already signed the line before they discover that. We were still really jerk people, you know. Uh, I, I don't think that's what he has in mind. Because there, there will be conflicts. 
But what the unbelieving world doesn't get to witness when we, when we bring these things to them is they don't get to witness that grace makes any difference in how we go about responding to conflict. That, that the gospel has anything to say about that. That there are real resources from God's spirit in how we seek to address this. All they get to witness is brother against brother. And, and, and your priorities have to be so misaligned to drag Christ into the courtroom and have him divided for your interest in this life. And so he says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. It's a lose-lose situation if you're fighting for the right thing. I was, I was reading a book it's written by a, a former FBI negotiator. There's a lot of hostage negotiation situations and, and, he, and he teaches training on negotiating in the business world. And one of the exercises he has his class do is he'll give half the class 10 bucks and the other half, other half they, they've got nothing to start with. And he says, all right, negotiate that. Uh, you know, the people with the money, they'll make an offer. The people that don't have anything will receive it. Uh, but at the end of a set time limit, you, you have to have exchanged something. You have to have lost something and gained something. Otherwise, I'm taking the money back from all of you. <laughs> you get nothing in the end. And, and the, the thing that would make sense in, in, in that situation, just mathematically, is the person who's got nothing should receive, okay, give me a dollar. But of course, their pride never wants that, you know? You, you, you got to be more fair to me. My sense of justice is that. But both of you end up with nothing in the end. And that's what Paul's saying here. You, you, you take this to court, you end up with nothing that matters in the end. Even if the judgment was in your favor. All lose Spiritually. To defeat if your primary concern is witness. And so he says this, and probably the most powerful questions in this paragraph. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? What questions those are? And that doesn't just apply before you decide to file suit. Again, that, that's a rare number of circumstances. Before you make an issue of this, before you press it further, before you gossip, before you hit publish, before you allow bitterness to settle in your heart, before you continue to allow this to be a point of division between you and somebody that Christ loves, why not rather suffer? That's the value system of a Christian. We would rather. We have a preference for let me experience loss. If I gain a brother. If the gospel is made beautiful. Through my actions. That's what Paul says. For him I have 
I've suffered the loss of all things and counted them rubbish. This is so countercultural. We, we've, we've been discipled by the world around us. It doesn't feel right. Outrage feels right. Anger feels right. Seeking justice at all costs feels right. Our culture teaches us that it is, it is wrong to be defrauded. That it's incomprehensible to suffer wrong at all. And, and the church is buying this message. We are absorbing it. There, there's, a, there's a new school of prosperity gospel out there. You know, the old school of prosperity gospel was, hey, just follow these spiritual tips and tricks and you'll experience material blessings. So if you have the right kind of faith, if you tithe to the right kind of ministry, then you'll have health and you'll have wealth and you'll have power in this world. The, the, the new school of prosperity gospel doesn't bring that same emphasis. But it's still, follow these spiritual tips and tricks and you'll have psychological blessing. Then you'll feel successful. Then you'll feel like you're somebody. And, and what are some of those tips and tricks, right? Think good thoughts about yourself. Uh, I know Keith has poked fun at this. Avoid all the toxic people in your life. And the assumption of this is that God hasn't intended for you to suffer in relationships, for them to cost something of, of you. For them to inconvenience you. This is a very popular Christian book today. And in it, the author writes, You should be the very first of your priorities. Life is too short to spend time with people who suck the happiness out of you. <laughs> uh, I wish it were that simple. And so whatever hinders my personal flourishing, whatever creates discomfort, whatever's like, that takes more than five thoughts to learn to figure out what to do with you. And so I'd rather just keep my distance. We avoid it. Even before conflict has come. Like even the potential of it. I don't want it in my life. I don't want it interrupting my schedule. I don't want there to be any possibility that I would suffer in this circumstance. All right, realistic expectations. Being a member of this church will cause you to suffer. <laughs> First Corinthians 12, one member suffers, all suffer together. That is normal in the Christian life. Relationships will create discomfort. They will create the possibility of being defrauded. Just think about the people that you have become distant from. Maybe there are children in here, children in their 20s who aren't in a good relationship with their parents. Children in their 40s who aren't in a good relationship with their parents. How much of that has been generated out of, I just, I just want to avoid the complications. I want to avoid the discomfort I want to avoid thinking through the ways that you have sinned against me in the past and the memories that come to mind and I don't want to have to deal with any of that. I deserve a better life than this. And so I, I'm, I'm comfortable with just staying at a distance. Who are people in your life that you, you don't speak to any, anymore, that you, you used to be close with them, you used to share life with them? You, your families got together 
Why is that? How is, is God calling you? Why not rather suffer wrong? Has, has God intended us to go through life escaping trouble and fighting for our rights? Remember what your name is. Remember who you are. First Peter 4, 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. We have the wisdom of God. We have the wisdom of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The one who was defrauded. The one who went through the sham of an unjust trial. The, the one who accomplished victory, not through insisting on his rights, but in surrendering them. The one who has already paid for the sins of the believer that you're in conflict with. How can we demand payment when the perfect righteous requirements of God have already been satisfied? When God has already said, Enough. I'm pleased. It's been paid in full. They owe no more. Why do we think that we deserve something beyond that? The one who set a model for us as we face injustice. First Peter 2, 23. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And, and again, that passage is not teaching that it's, it's wrong for there to be intervention in situations of injustice and for God-ordained means to step in and provide remedy. But we, we do these things while entrusting ourselves, entrusting our future to the one who will judge justly, who, who will make it right. Our culture teaches us press things as far as you can in this world until you have received what you are convinced is your due. And, and, and sometimes the soil and sometimes a 1 Corinthians 6 process plays out in a way that's very God-glorifying. And, and believers are reconciled with each other and, and grievances are addressed and the gospel is adorned in that and there is a beautiful testimony of the power of God in these situations. And at the same time, there's a lot that doesn't get settled in this life. There's a lot that we, we, we've exhausted the means that in this world and in this lifetime, God has provided. And it, it still feels like it's not been sorted through. It feels like there's been no fix for that. It feels like there's been no righting of wrongs. Look at this thought from John Newton. If Eric, you'd come back up, man. I've been reading his letters to a pastor named John Ryland. John Newton is the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace. And he talks about this concept he had gathered from another pastor of, of keeping two heaps, one of incurables and one of 
unaccountables. And, and sometimes you sort through life and you just need to find, okay, that goes in that heap and that goes in that one and let it be in its place. And he says this, you remember Dr. Cotton Mather's advice of preparing two heaps of incurables and unaccountables. I think I've profited by it. When I have hurt my fingers by attempting to make crooked things straight, I've been constrained to carry them to the Lord and leave them quietly with Him. And He, in due time, has done that for me, which I could not do for myself. He has all hearts in His hands. And when He is pleased to say to the winds and the waves, Be still, peace, a calm presently takes place. He said in another letter, The Lord can clear up everything. And make every crooked way straight. And he has appointed a day when he will do it. Till then, we must wait. And it's better to wait patiently than to break our brains and our hearts. In reasoning and contrivings. To as little purpose as if we were to study how to add a cubit to our stature. Are we content with incurables and unaccountables? Am I content? I don't don't think that means we have to feel okay about that. That is something to grieve. But do we give permission to those two heaps to exist in our life? We feel like all that's got to be sorted through. It's all, it's all got, it's got to land somewhere else that to me feels right, to me feels fair, to me feels just. Are there, are there experiences, are there memories, are there relationships where all that we can do, all that God has in his providence, in his eternal wisdom, in his sovereignty allowed us to do in this season of our life is say, that is in that heap right now. And maybe in this life, God will find another location for it. God will bring explanation. God will bring clarity. God will restore that to me. Or maybe it awaits the judgments of eternity. And it gets sorted through on the last day. Are we content with finding ourselves in a place of today? I suffer wrong. Today I'm defrauded. I entrust my soul to the one who judges justly. And I live according to the example and to the, by the power of the one who suffered, who paid for every one of my sins. We need to see the commonality that we have with those that we feel have sinned against us and the infinite distance that exists between us and the holy God we have sinned against. Who in his humanity allowed himself to be defrauded so that perfect justice could be met and so that mercy could flood into our lives 
so that on the day when everything is sorted through, we would not be facing his judgment as we deserve. But we would inherit the earth. We would have, as Jesus said, by sheer mercy restored to us a hundred times what we have lost in this life. All right, here's my question. Do you believe that? Does it shape the muscle memory of your soul? Does it make a bearing on the next thing that you do when you are offended? Or do we forget so quickly who we are and what God has done? Let's stand together. God, we seek the ministry of your spirit. This passage reaches into one category in a significant way, but it reaches into a thousand realities at the same time. And only you have the ability to minister to those thousand realities and the uniqueness of them that we have brought with us today the uniqueness of our suffering, the uniqueness of how we are grieved, the circumstances and situations that we face that seem immovable, the things that we we know won't be remedied in this life because there's no more opportunity of it. In that category, life has moved on or someone has passed away or we're in a different place than we were and, and, and we can't go back and fix that. Own how we have sinned. Seek reconciliation with somebody that we have felt has wronged us. God, we seek your nearness for that. But God, we seek real wisdom, real power. God, we, we don't want to be drawing from the the thin counterfeit versions of these things that our culture presents to us again and again what it means to do justice we need your insight for that we need your wisdom that guards us from being wise in our own eyes We need the resources of the gospel ministered in our community. And God, we we need help in our relationships. We, We need courage. We need you to lead us. Lord, in some cases, people people need to take real action steps. They they need a defined process. They need to set up a meeting with a pastor. They 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 need an, an organized attempt. To follow what your word teaches us to do here. God, I pray that you give them faith for that. Lord, not not faith that that is without limitation, but faith that they are going through exactly what you have intended them to experience. 
God, we seek your heart today.